With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey everybody, let me talk to you here for a second. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Here, let me explain real quick. First off, it's free. That is the best word in the English language. Free. There's also a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more You can make money from your podcast as well with no minimum listenership. That's big. I mean, huge for brand new podcasters. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Just download the free Anchor app or go to anchorfm.com to get started. The only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Hello, survivors, and welcome to the main event, Mark's podcast, for another bonus show here for the month of November. I am former radio guy, lifelong wrestling fan, figure collector, and the host of this here podcast. I am Troy, and with me, he is back, back again. Jacob's back. Tell some friends. It is the Jim Powers to my Paul Roma. He is Jacob Grandi. What's up, Jacob? How's it going? How's it going? I'm pretty slim, but I'm not shady, guys. You don't have to worry about it. I appreciate the uh, introduction. <laughs> yeah, and uh, all people that grew up in our era get that reference. So it's, it's I, I'm, I'm starting to get a little sad that the that, uh, kids nowadays might not understand that reference. Well, you just got to say he's the guy who uh, MGK put over in that rap battle. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Now, who's who's this this old guy with the dark hair and the beard? It's like, God dang it. But yeah, today, man, we're talking about something else that's kind of old. This was actually before my time. It's Survivor Series 1987. The first one. What uh, what'd you think of when I, I know you reached out to me and you said you had fun last time. You love talking retro wrestling. I was definitely planning on having you back anyway, but you kind of uh, sparked it with me and you were like, yeah, let's uh, let's do another show for for uh, Survivor Series month. We got to cover the big four or five. If you know, Greg doesn't include Money in the Bank. Do you? Um, I would say, yeah. Why not include? It? I think Money in the Bank kind of uh, definitely jumped King of the Ring, and at this point, I think jumped. Uh, I know we're I'm you know we're talking about Survivor Series here today, but I think Money in the Bank to me is a little bit more important than Survivor Series. Uh, I'd put it on. I mean, as far as the stakes, definitely. But Greg and I went to uh, Survivor Series last year, actually, in Chicago. And it's sad that this year's Survivor Series is not going to include NXT. And it's also not going to include fans in the stands. But we got to go to, you know, if, if we're going with Friends episodes here, it's the one before the pandemic. And it was fun. Uh, I love Chicago. So shout out to anybody uh, if you're listening from Chicago. The show was great. The arena was cool. Uh, it was a good night, but this was uh, 33 years in the past. Is that kind of weird to think about? Oh, yeah, it's very weird to think about. Um, I was, uh, I'm was i 31, so this is two years before I was even born, but I do remember this era fondly, like we talked about last time, because of the blockbuster VHSs, the movie rental VHSs, you would beeline it right to the uh, wrestling section of the rental store, and uh, I would always get 80s WWF stuff. Uh, I was I grew up in North Carolina, so I was being flooded with Mid-Atlantic wrestling. So it was still interesting to me to see that WWF had a past, and I would always keep up with it uh, through these like VHS rental stores. Yeah, that's that's how I became a bigger wrestling fan because my dad started me off watching Monday Night Raw. He would occasionally switch over to Nitro. But and I also became a wrestling fan off of video games because growing up it was all about Super Nintendo and then it became about PlayStation. But I remember when I first became a wrestling fan, my dad would rent there was a game called WWF Royal Rumble for the Super Nintendo, and they made another game after that that was almost the exact same thing but a little different, uh, slightly updated called WWF Raw, and I would play the crap out of those games. And then I'd be like, well, where are some of these guys? My dad would switch on WCW, and he's like, they're there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I think uh, I definitely want to talk about this this here with you. And you talk about you growing up in, you know, kind of a WCW, NWA territory there. Uh, I think it'll be pertinent to our news and notes when we talk about that. I, admittedly, I don't have a lot. Uh, it's ma- mainly one story that I'm going to drag out a little bit because it's really hard to find news from year 1987. I found a lot of news starting on January of 88, but before that, it's kind of hard. But yeah, all in all, I think it's time to, uh, you, you want to get into the, to some of the news and notes of the time? Yeah, let's, let's dive in. I'm pretty excited about this. All right. Well, let's take, uh, let's take our first break of the podcast then and dive into all that. on Twitter and Instagram at main event underscore marks and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash main event marks pod. The 
been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Now, back to our program. <laughs> News and notes time from November of 1987. The big thing was Starcade 1987. Those that grew up watching wrestling when I started, because I didn't start watching wrestling until the fall of 80, or uh, excuse me, 97. So 10 years after this. And so I don't remember a time when Starcade was on Thanksgiving. But that was always the tradition up until around this time. It switched, uh, or, you know, closer. I, I want to say 88 was the first time it switched, maybe 89. Um, but yeah, they specifically switched it because of Survivor Series. Because Vince said, screw your Starcade, I'm coming at you with another pay-per-view to compete. Starcade 87, as we, you know, I mentioned already, sh- Chicago, it was Chi-Town Heat. It was held the same night as Survivor Series after Starcade was outperformed by Survivor Series, Jim Crockett Promotions and the World Wrestling Federation continued to compete when JCP held the Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view event in January of 88. The WWF held the Royal Rumble event, a television special, on the same night as the Bunkhouse Stampede, which was pay-per-view. In return, JCP held the first Clash of the Champions, also a television special, on the same night as WrestleMania 4. Clash of Champions was a success and drew a large cable rating. And I think they also had the advantage of WrestleMania 4 wasn't very good, all in all. Oh, no. I think, uh, I mean, there's a reason people talk about 3 and then they jump to 6. Because 4 and 5 were kind of very long and uh, kind of boring, but had a lot of Donald Trump in there. Yeah, it was in Trump Plaza. I think WrestleMania 5, Greg and I talked about it, was, and we, we joked about it, but at the same time, Russell, like you said, WrestleMania 5 wasn't very good. It was literally a one-match show. Same thing, WrestleMania Set well, WrestleMania 5 also had I, I want to say it had like maybe one undercard match that was okay, but I'm blanking right now. Which one was the tournament? Wasn't there one that was a big show long tournament? That was uh, that was four, four. Yeah. yeah, that one that was a uh, pretty pretty long, yeah. Well, that's why uh, all the matches were really short, not good, and it just built up to the main event, which was. Macho Man beating Teddy DiBiase for the world title. And there's a lot, you know, we'll talk about some of it here because they're like building up to it. And the whole buildup, even on the video cassette package, you know, they're talking about Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant meet again in the world title tournament. And it, I mean, it happened, but um, I, I do, do you remember when they met? I don't. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> See, there, there you go. They they clashed sort of at WrestleMania four, and I want to say it was a double countout. So yeah, it was. They the whole buildup was Hogan Andre two, and it just didn't really happen. Huh. So yeah, I, was, uh, I looked into like uh, after this show, I was like, how you know how many matches did Andre wrestle after this? And uh, I was thinking I was going to be able to count it, but it was like, over 100 for WWF. And he also went to New Japan and All Japan as well. So I was shocked by the amount of 
spots left to fill on Andre's bump card here, even after this point. It was a, uh, I guess, but like you know, as we saw, he didn't really uh, do a whole lot in these uh, in these matches here. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Cause it was a it was a double disqualification. By the way, I'm looking it up. The match only lasted five minutes twenty three seconds until a double disqualification. Ted DiBiase got a bye into the final round of the tournament to take on Randy Savage. Uh, and Randy Savage won his uh, semifinals match against the One Man Gang in four minutes via disqualification. So this show was not good. It took place at Trump Plaza, and Greg and I joked that it was uh, WrestleMania Five was like a mulligan for WWF. They were like, "Hey, Trump, we know the last one sucked. We'll give you five. Five. And then, yeah. and then five wasn't very good. So I don't know. All in all. But uh, Starcade 87, though, the main event was Hands of Stone Ron Garvin defending the NWA world title against the Nature Boy Ric Flair in a steel cage match. Uh, the Nature Boy ended Garvin's reign as champion that night. So people don't usually look back at Ronnie Garvin's NWA title run fondly. There wasn't anything to be like, oh, man, do you, rem- do you remember when? It was kind of he won the title out of necessity, just get it off Flair for a little while. And then Flair won it right back at Starcade. So, and when people ask Ron Garvin about it, he's like, he's not, he's one of them kind of guys, like the old timers that was like, wrestling wasn't his life. He was like, eh, I made a lot of money. Uh, I like being the champion because my paychecks were bigger. And that was it, you know? Yeah, that's hilarious. I don't know. Starcade 87 was what it was. Furthering on uh, with it here. Uh, Lex Luger also defended the NWA United States Heavyweight title against Duff the Rhodes in a steel cage match. Because we can't just let the main event be special in a steel cage. We also, you know, du- Stardust there, Big Dust, he's also got to be in a cage. So, I don't know. I, and look, I love Dusty Rhodes. I'm not trying to speak Ill, Ill of him or whatever. However, you know, he did this kind of crap a lot. He... Took on Lex Luger, like I said. Johnny Weaver held the keys to the cage. Rhodes would be suspended for 90 days if he lost. James J. Dillon ended up attacking Weaver with a steel uh, steel chair, and he took the key. As the referee attempted to stop Dillon from unlocking the door, Luger ran into uh, ran into him, and Dillon threw the chair. Luger attempted to pick it up, but Rhodes hit a DDT on the chair to win the match and the title. So, you know, Dusty had to have his big triumphant moment in a steel cage before Flair. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's one of the things that he was definitely, uh, you know, judged upon during this time, man. He just couldn't put anyone else on the level he was on uh, as far as the faces go. He always had to, uh, you know, have the biggest spectacle on the card or at least tied to the biggest spectacle. I mean, that's why a lot of people, I mean, in the Carolinas, I mean, it wasn't like the point of Hogan in the 90s where he then went NWO, but there was a lot of people that were... uh, Definitely pro-Flair because of stuff like that. Yeah, and I realize, you know, Flair was the heel and uh, all that. But at the same time, you know, he just, he, Gold Dust, or excuse me, Gold Dust, God. Uh, Dusty always had to have, you know, tops. And, and, and I know he was a star. I get it. You know, kind of like when people complain about Cody Rhodes in AEW. He's a star. He gets big ovations. People buy his merchandise. It is what it is. But at the same time, I don't know. And Greg always, you know, jokes with me that he's like, well, I mean, you can tell that, you know, Cody is the son of Dusty, by the way he books. And because and, I said something on one podcast about, you know, uh, Dusty winning 
winning a match, winning a title, whatever. And I kind of did the dusty impression was like, I will put myself over in the end, baby. And, and uh, Greg was like, you can do that, said Cody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The two things I like about Cody is, yeah, you can definitely tell that he's got uh, the booking influence from his dad. But when he's in the ring wrestling, you can definitely tell that he grew up going to these WCW shows where Hogan was on top because he's got the right. <clears throat> the weightlifting belt. He comes out with all the people. <laughs> he poses. He's definitely um, behind the behind the stage. He's his dad in front of the stage. He is Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, with a little bit of Ric Flair thrown in too, I think. Oh, for sure, for sure, with the suits and everything. Yep, yeah. So he's a little, little bit Nature Boy, a little bit Hulk Hogan, a little bit uh, Dusty Rhodes. And I've always, I've always laughed about that because I was like, he comes out, he rips his shirt off, he wears a weight belt in the ring, he has bleach blonde hair. He's Hulk Hogan. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't quite have that. I mean, his tan is okay. His tan is fine. He doesn't look overly tanned, so I appreciate that. But he doesn't quite have the Starcade main eventing tan that you know that we need to see. Yeah, and he's in Florida. He has no excuse. Right? Yeah, you're chilling out in Jacksonville, dude. Get some, catch some rays. For sure, for sure. But I gotta say, uh, trading in Eric Bischoff for Brandy Rhodes is a hell of an upgrade. Oh yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge uh, Eric Bischoff fan. Not a fan of Brandy. But there is one that is more easy on the eyes, although Eric Bischoff does have the greatest head of hair in the history of professional wrestling. I just got to make that clear. (laughs) Second only to Charles Robinson, the little Nate. Oh, yeah, I would have to give the nod to little Nate, man, just for longevity purposes. He came into the game in 98. Seems like he's still not a not a strand misplaced, even when running down the ramp to WrestleMania. Right. But furthering on to this card, just wrapping it up, the NWA television champion Nikita Koloff faced Bill Watts' UWF television champion uh, Terry Taylor. This was at a time where they were trying to get the wrestling network kicked off. So if you watch Starcade 87, the ring apron says uh, TWN, the wrestling network, and they were trying to merge Bill Watts to a gullible Jim, Cor- uh, Jim Crockett. Because Bill Watts' territory was just sinking hard. The oil industry in his territory was drying up. Therefore, the fans and the money were drying up. And he tried to sell to Vince. And Vince said, you have nothing I want to buy. No, thank you. So Bill turned around and went to Jim Crockett and said, hey, Vince is going to buy my territory. You might want to make an offer. And Jimmy said, "All right, yeah, sure, I'll buy you out. So Bill Watts came in and they did this whole... NWA versus UWF thing. Bill Watts got the book. It was just, it was madness. Huh. I mean, uh, definitely a little carny there. You can't, uh, you can't blame him for that in the wrestling business. Yeah, it was, it was something. And uh, I, I blame Jim Crockett for being so gullible. I'll say that. So, I mean, it is what it is. But, um, this was not the UWF, if people listen in the archives, that we reviewed before with Blackjack Brawl 94. That was the UWF run by one uh, Herb Abrams that you can see all hear, see and hear all about on Dark Side of the Ring. He had an episode titled Cocaine and Cowboy Boots. Also with the UWF stuff on this card, Dr. Dust Steve Williams successfully defended the UWF heavyweight title against Barry Windham. That title would eventually go the way of the dodo and be gone. The event also featured a Skywalkers match because it was the late 80s. 
featuring the Midnight Express versus Shock and Awe, the Rock and Roll Express. Those guys never faced off, but the Rock and Rolls won the match. And finally, the, the last thing I want to talk about from this event, in the biggest misstep of the night, keep in mind, the show was titled Starcade 87, uh, Chi-Town Heat. So they were in Chicago. Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard retained the NWA tag team titles against local favorites, the Road Warriors. And they did this with a dusty finish after the Warriors de were declared the winners of the match. However, the, de the decision was reversed when it was determined that Anderson was uh, thrown over the top rope. So the Road Warriors were disqualified. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know, man. Bait and switch. <laughs> For sure. You got to love it. You got to love it. Makes me want to. Okay. Makes me. I uh, wish we picked that show to review. Honestly, I watched it. Trust me, you don't want to watch it. <laughs> okay. It wasn't okay. any. I mean, for historical purposes, people go back and check it out. Whatever that match in particular was good, but my gosh, the NWA did that crap all the time. It, bait and switch, dusty finishes, and in Chicago, apparently they didn't go to Chicago all the time. For those don't remember the territory days chicago was a stronghold for the awa not the nwa so this was a new market for them that they were trying to branch out to huge market and this all but killed the territory for them because every time they went back for the longest time the crowds were never as big never as rabid so it took them a while to gain the trust back of the chicago audience that's all i'm going to say but this that's was uh, yeah but this kind of started a downward trend for the NWA and Jim Crockett promotions. If anybody goes back and listens to our uh, 1989 reviews earlier this year, we covered the the three events that, that held um, the Flair Steamboat Trilogy of 89. The crowds were abysmal. They just sucked. No, They, they couldn't buy a crowd. I remember during this time, uh, or maybe a few years later, um, WCW was going from uh, you know Greensboro Coliseum, which is like twenty thousand, to out in w three hours west and Asheville Civic Center, which held about like four thousand. Yeah. So y you could definitely tell that they were trying to uh, catch up to the crowds that were uh, fleeing. And when they would, and I mean, some of it was well that we can't run this arena because WWF has an unlock, you know, stuff like that. But as far as like in, I'm from the Dayton area. And when they would come to Dayton, there was the Nutter Center that the WWF would go to. That's the big one in town. WCW always went to the Hera Arena, which was the small place that they always held, like, monster truck rallies and stuff at and uh, small concerts. So it wasn't comparable. WCW never had the edge that way. I mean, in later years, in the uh, I'd say from 96 on uh, until about 99, they were still bringing in monster crowds that rivaled the WWF. I'd even say 95, because the crowds were sucked for everybody all the way around in 95. But that's all I have for news and notes of the time. You want to get into the event at hand? Yeah, let's uh, let's jump in. Um, I was wondering here, um, it's in yeah. Richfield Coliseum in Cleveland. You, you said you uh, drove out to Chicago. Have you ever driven to this arena? I have not. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely talk, because I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about the, the arena itself and kind of personal stories. Not for me, but uh, my father has some memories of this place, and I'll kind of talk about a little bit about the history, not too much in the weeds, because, you know, I don't want to bore people with, you know, arena history, but, you know, just a little stuff that I know from my past and my family's past. But we'll, we'll get into that for sure uh, here right after our 
last break before the event talk. on Twitter and Instagram at main event underscore marks and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash main event marks pod. <sighs> the only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Now, back to our program. All right, man. WWF Survivor Series 1987. We're here. It took place on Thanksgiving night, November 26, 1987. I don't know why. I mean... I know why it happened exactly on this day, because he was trying to compete with uh, Starcade. But according to Bruce Pritchard, Vince never, ever liked running events on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is like a sacred holiday to Vince McMahon for some reason. And I, I know, Bruce Pritchard claims it's because he's a big family guy and also because it's his like big cheat day of the year. Because, you know, Vince is a dining workout freak. So Thanksgiving is the one day that he cheats. I don't know, but... Either way, the tagline of the event was the biggest event since WrestleMania 3. SummerSlam was not yet a thing. You and I reviewed uh, the very first SummerSlam, now back in the archives. It was our August bonus show. I want to say that was 88? Yeah, that was 88 when you're, when you're ahead. Yeah, and, and not to get into the, you know, reviewing all the show at once, but I kind of, I enjoyed this better than the SummerSlam show just a little bit or at least at least the the same what, what what do you say about it yeah as far as uh going back and getting that nostalgia it's cool because um you know you get multiple stars at one time um for, you know very obviously uh for survivor series so you got to see like oh you know like how does haku and baby boy smith go up against each other how does dynamite kid and bret hart look together at this time and you got to see that all within the body of one match which in SummerSlam is just you know Singles match, go to the back. Singles match, go to the back. So it was much more rewarding and interesting from a uh, from hindsight. Yeah, you get a lot of stars in a in in uh, one period of time, and yeah, I graded on a curve a little bit with this one because not all the matches are going to hit as far as like you know, oh my gosh, this is you know seven stars in the Tokyo Dome type stuff, you know. But all in all, I thought as far as five-on-five Survivor Series matches, and one of them is a 10-on-10 Survivor Series match. I thought all in all, it, it served its purpose, and it was a it was a pretty cool event. Uh, yeah, like if but, I was there with my family, and we, you know, a few of us were having some beers, this would be the perfect thing I'd want to see, just a bunch of people cheering and uh, not really having to pay too much attention to the uh, in-ring action because, you know, we're probably watching a kid, probably standing in line to get some food at one point. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, I, there were times um, I wasn't glued to my screen throughout because each match, they only have four matches on the card. All of them are over 20 minutes long. It's kind of hard to stay glued to your screen for that amount of time unless it's just like a damn good or, uh, good match, you know. Uh, but oh, for sure, for sure. It was all in all, I thought the matches were were fine. Uh, there was one that it wasn't very good, but... But yeah, as you mentioned, this took place at the Richfield Coliseum in Richfield Township, Ohio. I'll get to that in a second. The official attendance was 21,300, and on pay-per-view, they brought in 350,000 buys. 
So that was really, really good for 1987 because for people, and again, this was before my time, so this is just stuff I was told. Back then, you couldn't, it wasn't just like, oh, let's change it to a pay-per-view channel, buy, and it'll be on my next bill. No, you had to drive to the cable place, order it, pick up a special box that you then had to drive back home, hook up to your TV, and then get the pay-per-view on, and then take that box back to the cable provider. Oh, yeah. It was a little uh, different. I definitely have uh, memories of doing that um, with my mom uh, before and after we would get these pay-per-views. Because the thing is, if you wanted the pay-per-view, I think on Sunday, like the the place you went was, they weren't open on Saturday and Sunday. You had to get it Friday afternoon for Sunday afternoon and then return it that next week. So it was literally like a 10-day ordeal to watch a four-hour wrestling show. It, it, it was a big, like, drawn-out thing. And some people, it just wasn't feasible to do that. So that's, you know, some people just couldn't order pay-per-view even if they wanted to. It's, it wasn't readily available like today. There was no such thing as streaming. So, you know, think, you got to think about that. This, you had to really work for, for this in 87. As far as Richfield Coliseum went, it, uh, it, it was the home. It was also called the Coliseum at Richfield, you know, whichever. Uh, the seating capacity was 20,273. So basically we had a sellout for Survivor Series. It's the former home of the Cleveland Cavaliers, excuse me, the 2016 World Champion Cleveland Cavaliers. Sorry, I had to say that because of uh, my co-host that's a uh, Warriors fan. This was the arena before the house that LeBron built down there in downtown Cleveland and everything? Yeah, we, we do not speak of the LeBron name, but yes. <laughs> Sorry, I, after, he gave my, after he gave Cleveland the finger twice, I, uh, I, I kind of ignore him. But I will watch Space Jam, too, because... Uh, I'm a child. Either way, <laughs> the arena, it, it, uh, it was the main arena for Northeast Ohio until 1994, and it was replaced by the Gund Arena in downtown Cleveland at that time. The Gund Arena, by the way, is still around. It's just, you know, I mean, that's it, it went from the Gund to the Quicken Loans Arena or the Q. Now it's the Rocket Loans Arena or some bull crap. I don't know. I, I, so the Rocket Loan, or excuse me, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. I, I can't even remember because it's so stupid. But this was, it says the site of the building, it's not there anymore. If anybody wants to see the Richfield Coliseum, it doesn't exist anymore. The site of the building was converted to a meadow and is now part of the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. But, I mean, it held a lot of history. It was the site of the uh, March 24th, 1975 boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Chuck Wettner, uh, which was, in part, inspired the Rocky movie. And, and there was just, I don't know, uh, Larry Bird said uh, it was his favorite arena to play in. So it also took place, by the way, Richfield Coliseum didn't just house this Survivor Series. It housed Survivor Series 87, 88, and 92. Lots of history with this place. My dad uh, talked about in the 80s. That's where he went to watch wrestling because he lived in the Cleveland area all of his life. So he would go there with his buddies, and he saw Andre and Bobby Heenan, Demolition, the, the Bulldogs, you know, all that stuff. So this place held a lot of memories uh, from not just basketball, but wrestling, boxing, you know, whatever. It's a famous arena in the area. But unfortunately, like I said, it's not there anymore. Yeah, it's sad to hear, but it's really cool to hear all that stuff about it. Larry Bird, Muhammad Ali, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, all competing there. Um, and now it's just a torn down meadow. 
um, you always kind of felt like there was more people in the crowd during these 80s shows than when they did the Titantron thing, just because how it was shot. Like when you saw Gorilla Monsoon yeah. and Jesse Ventura, there was crowd. And then when they would do those big arrow, uh, those big uh, shots above everything, it just looked like a sea of people. These 80s crowds were hot as hell. It's like they were actually there and they were just, one, excited to be there. And two, I mean, I know how cartoony 80s WWF was, but I mean, they were there watching a sport where nowadays it seems like, yeah, they'll show up. And it seems like they're sitting just to be kind of the background of their favorite TV show or watching theater. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I mean, they're waiting for their chance to to chant, you know, their favorite chance and be an a-hole on TV, you know, or pay-per-view or whatever the hell. We start the show off by introducing Jesse the Body Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon at the commentary table. No shock, Jesse is wearing a pilgrim hat. Because why not? Yeah, I popped huge for the pilgrim hat. I thought it was a hilarious uh, fashion choice, as always, by the body. Yeah, it's it's funny that he... Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I've always loved Jesse Ventura. He's so effing ridiculous. And, and unfortunately, I don't know why, like, what happened here, but... That the main event was supposed to feature superstar Billy Graham was going to be on Hulk Hogan's team. Like I said, I don't know why he was replaced, but that would have been cool to see Jesse the Body Ventura, Hulk Hogan, and superstar Billy Graham all in the same arena at the same time. Yeah, that would have been a real clash of styles there. But this was this was pre uh, feather boa for Hogan, so that would have been a lot of feather boas in one match. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and the thing is, I mean, they've made no bones about, you know, Jesse Ventura obviously is like wholesale ripoff of Superstar. Hulk Hogan just took bits and pieces from Superstar, but he didn't full on. Not until he was Hollywood did he really take a lot from Superstar Billy Graham. And I don't know why. Maybe he figured he's like, well, it's 1996, 1997. You know, it's it's been a long enough period of time. People don't, most people don't remember superstar Billy Graham. I'm just going to do his gimmick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point, it's kind of like saying a band's ripping off Led Zeppelin. It's like, of course they're ripping off Led Zeppelin. Yeah, right. This, uh, th- that would have been cool to see. But, you know, I mean, superstar himself said, because uh, I've seen recent interviews where he was talking about it, he was like, ah, I, you know, it, it's flattering. Cool. You know, Jesse Ventura literally came up to him and was like, I want to do your gimmick. And it, there for a while, Ventura was going to be um, with, like uh, is supposed to be his son or his little brother or something in gimmick. And yeah, so I don't know. Oh, I, I, I'm looking it up now, by the way. Graham was replaced. Uh, he, he had to retire because of a hip injury suffered during a match against Butch Reed. Oh, so. that sucks. That's about, yeah, when I heard him on this show, I was like, wow, that's a little late for him. So, I mean, I guess yeah. it was just late enough. Yeah, it was. I mean, don't get me wrong. It would have been cool from a nostalgia point, but he would not have been good. So I'm fine with him being replaced by Don Morocco. But we start the show. We go backstage after the commentary and whatever. Sean Mooney's backstage with the heel team for the first match during uh, doing an interview. This was a super young, chibi Sean Mooney. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, oh. I, I pop huge every time I see him on these old shows. Yeah. Yeah, I wish he was still in wrestling. He was he was doing a podcast called the Primetime uh, or Primetime with uh, Sean Mooney for a while, and he stopped last year or, or I think it was right before the pandemic. He stopped because he said uh, he had other obligations he was doing. Basically, he made it seem like he got a new job, but then nothing happened. So I, don't know, I was hoping he was going to pop up in AEW or something, but he hasn't. I would 
gladly throw Alex Marvez out the window in exchange for Sean Mooney. I don't know about you. Yeah, he could get super kicked off my screen, and I wouldn't even question it if he didn't show up next week. I, I don't think anybody has ever... The only person that cares about Alex Marvez, and I'm sure he's a wonderful human being, all right, but the only person that cares about Alex Marvez on television is Tony Effingon. So Sean Mooney's with Honky Tonk Man, who speaks for the entire team. The team is uh, Honky Tonk, Harley Race, Hercules, Ron Bass, and Danny Davis, while Bobby Heenan stands to the side. All the team are acting like villainous cartoon characters. This is a theme for the night, by the way. Everybody's just acting like the wacky racers, basically. Yeah, but, uh, I love these 80s promos like this. Like uh, Everyone's just hyped up, sweaty, laughing. It's like, what did these people do in their free time? to conjugate here in front of this microphone. It's pretty ridiculous. And uh, Danny Davis, um, it's always fun to see him because I know that he, uh, the early 2000s OVW uh, stuff that, you know, had Randy Orton, John Cena, uh, Brock Lesnar, was all filmed in the Danny Davis arena. So every time I see him, I always think about how they named that small arena after him in OVW. Uh, And I kind of crack up. I I kind of am a low-key Danny Davis mark because of that small arena. That's actually a different Danny Davis. Oh, there's, there's okay. Two. Yeah, there's uh, there's the Danny Davis um, wrestler. Well, I they were both wrestlers, but there was Nightmare Danny Davis is the one they named the arena after. Dangerous oh, okay. Danny Davis was this one. So, yeah, I know it's really confusing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> now that you said that, I don't even like this guy anymore. Yeah, this was Dangerous Danny Davis who became... Uh, he was the, he was the wrestling referee or the, the wrestling heel referee, whatever. And the nightmare Danny Davis, he is the founder of Ohio Valley wrestling. So yes, he, he, uh, he was also a pro wrestler and referee in his day. So yeah, but he's, he's a little bit older, uh, nightmare Danny Davis. He's, he's 68, whereas dangerous Danny Davis is, uh, 64. So yeah, but I was hella confused about that as well because I was like, wait a minute, there are two people named Danny Davis in wrestling? Like, why? For any collectors out there, by the way, I bought the Booker T that came in the series where you can build Danny Davis and have your own, like, build a referee. If anybody else has the other parts, because I don't really feel like buying the other toys in that line, uh, hit me up on social media. Uh, I would be glad to buy the other parts off of you to create my Danny Davis. I think I have his legs and his arms. I need his head and his torso. So help a brother out. But either way, Mean Gene Oakland is also backstage with a babyface team. That's led by the macho man, Randy Savage. These guys are also acting like giant cartoon characters. Instead of one man doing all the talking for this team, though, everyone gets some mic time. But you can barely hear them because the audio is so crappy. And... And also, Honky Tonk Man's music is blaring in the background while they're talking. Did you understand yeah. a word these guys were saying? Uh, no, no, I, I couldn't. But the the visual was making up for it. I mean, Macho, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, uh, Brutus the Barber, Beefcake, Jake the Snake Roberts, and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. I mean, this is this is a squad here. Oh, oh yeah, for like- sure. <laughs> it's all good. We censor on this show. But this, yeah, this match, getting into the match itself, it was Team, team Honky Tonk Man. It was Honky Tonk Man, the King, Harley Race, and his ridiculous King getup. Hercules, Outlaw Ron Bass, and Dangerous Andy Davis. They had Bobby the Brain Heenan and Jimmy Hart in their corner. Uh, this was a theme throughout the night, the managers, by the way. And they took on Team Macho Man. It was Macho Man Randy Savage with Miss Elizabeth, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Brutus, I'm going to call him by his Christian God-given name, by the way. 
Brutus the Ethan Barber Beefcake, or the Butcher, uh, Brother Booty, whatever you want to call him, Jake the Snake Roberts, and Hacksaw went for 24 minutes. Kind of running down the match here. Harley Race and Jim Duggan are eliminated at the same time via countout when they wouldn't quit brawling outside the ring. After a blind tag from Macho to Beefcake, Beaver pinned Ron Bass with a running high knee. Uh, Beefcake is eliminated by Honky Tonk Man after Davis tripped Beefcake up, and Honky pins him with a shake, rattle, and roll. Jake the Snake pinned Danny Davis after the DDT. Gotta love the outdated racist Pearl Harbor job line from Gorilla (laughs) Monsoon, by the way. That was always a staple of these events. Total Pearl Harbor job. Yeah, no, fast forward 30-some years later, uh, Jim Cornette says something and gets blasted on the internet. And he's like, what? What did I say? And everyone's just like, you know, like, okay, boomer. No. Like, I've never seen a bigger okay, boomer than that moment. Yeah, right. Yeah, I I don't know. I Like, something tells me that, like, Jim Cornette didn't learn, but something tells me that, like, if Gorilla Monsoon was still alive today and commentating, he would know not to use the line, oh, he Pearl Harbored him. <laughs> like I think For he sure. would be smart enough to, to know that's bad but Jim Cornette just doesn't learn he's like what, what do you mean I can't make a fried chicken joke <laughs> it's like part of me loves Jim Cornette from the wrestling perspective but like I don't like he's kind of uh, yeah like it's everything extra that gets him out of wrestling it's kind of interesting to watch right I mean but, but speaking about Jim Cornette and speaking about a. Uh, Survivor Series 87 in the first match here. We had Hayman, uh, uh, Bobby Heaton, uh, Jimmy Hart, and Miss Elizabeth as um, managers. So that's like a who's who of managing in the 80s all in one match. Oh, yeah. Well, wait for the main event. We'll uh, definitely talk about managers then. Uh, sure. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they're littered throughout the night. Don't get me wrong. But hot dang. Yeah, that main event was over-freaking-loaded. Wrap this one up. Uh, after Ricky Steamboat hits Hercules with a top rope flying chop, a body slam, and a grounded chop, he tags in Macho to drop the flying elbow on Hercules for pinfall elimination. That, I mean, yeah, they pinned him, but they really made Hercules look strong there, so that was cool. It's now three on one. Finally, Honky Tonk Man gets tired of it. Uh, he gets tired of being triple teamed because they're just basically pinballing him all over the ring. And he takes off up the aisle, and he's counted out. Team Macho picks up the win. Uncle Dave Meltzer gave this two and one-fourth stars. I gave it three stars. I was thoroughly entertained. What say you? I would say just right in the middle of that average. I would say, yeah, like two and three-quarters to three-star range. I mean, it it's kind of hard to not, like, just sit back and be thoroughly entertained by this match. But if you're sitting there and, like, critiquing the match um, rather than just watching it, yeah, you're going to just, you know, these guys are just going in, doing the minimum, getting the biggest reaction. And, uh at the end, there was, you know, the heel just runs away. So I can, you know, yeah. get a lower score, I understand. But obviously, this is 80s WWE. you got to watch it with a little bit of a different eyes. I would even say two and a half stars, um, you know, I think would be fair. So, I don't know. I, I didn't think the match was, was bad. Everybody got their stuff in, brother, you know. So, I don't know. If, if you're a fan of this kind of stuff, uh, I mean, it was... It was, it was all action all the time, so there wasn't a bunch of uh, boring rest holds and whatever else. So and we, we go backstage again with Sean Mooney, who is yet again interviewing the heel team. That was his duty all night. This time, it's Bobby Heenan and Slick. They're with Andre the Giant, Rick Rude, a blonde-haired Butch Reed, uh, King Kong Bundy, and One Man Gang. is a massive team. Heenan claims that Andre was the real winner at WrestleMania three. They show 
the kind of a, a clip where Hogan pinned and Hogan kicked out right at three, but the ref stopped the count and he claims, well, that was a real pinfall. Andre won. Andre said he's going to pin Hogan again tonight. Slick screams into the microphone, and that's all the notes I got for this one. Yeah, it was a it was a nice visual, but not a very good promo. Now Heenan, I mean Heenan did his thing. Andre was, if you can understand what the hell Andre is saying, he wasn't a bad promo either most of the time. So, but this next match was the women's match of the night. I didn't know in 1987 they employed this many women, but it was a uh, fabulous moolah. It was Fabulous Moolah, Velvet McIntyre, Rockin' Robin, who is the younger sister of uh, Jake the Snake Roberts, and Jumping Bomb Angels, who were Itsuki Yamazaki and Noriyu Tateno. I'm sorry, I probably butchered those names, but uh, forgive me here. They're taking on the team of, it was Team Sherry. It was the ladies wrestling champion, Sensational Sherry, Don Marie, not that Don Marie, Donna Cristinello. And the Glamour Girls, Judy Martin and Leilani Kai, they had Jimmy Hart in their corner. This one, I was surprised, went for 20 minutes. They actually gave it some time. But I think it was still the shortest match on the card, oddly enough. I said the commentary for this match was kind of awkward by 2020 standard because they're talking about how the women are messing each other's makeups up. Uh, They're talking about women's liberation and how the women hit just as hard as the men. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it was a little wonky. I also enjoyed that Jesse Ventura plugged his uh, appearance in Running Man. Have you got, have you seen that Arnold movie? No, I had. Well, maybe I have. I don't know. I forgot he was in that movie. Uh, I did. I did too. Uh, I that's a that's another uh, blockbuster classic. Is Running Man? It's like a a futuristic uh, like game show where people try to kill you in it, and uh, you know, pretty yeah. much Arnold Schwarzenegger was running through it. And it's really cool because it's like very 80s, but set in the future. So uh, it's a good, a good laugh. Yeah, it's supposed to be their, uh, their prisoners, and they're like trying to the game show to earn their freedom and escape from the law. But the game is rigged and all that stuff. So I, you know, that old chestnut. So I, I remember that one, and it's it's actually oddly enough based on a Stephen King book. Oh, the, cool, cool. I was really uh, impressed how- by uh, the Glamour Girls and uh, the Jumping Bomb Angels here. I thought. Both teams could go, and uh, I looked yeah. into it. The Jumping Bomb Angels, yeah, I mean they they're Hall of Famers from 2018 uh, class, and oh, really? uh, yeah, and uh, I didn't know that either, and uh, until I you know looked it up, and they're from the All Japan's Women's, and then I think the Glamour Girls with Jimmy Hart, they were probably maybe from Memphis, and I know that Japan and Memphis, uh, you know, had a, a talent exchange more or less at the time, so I'm I bet that these two tag teams were no strangers to each other, and it definitely showed in the ring here. Well, the Glamour Girls uh, were, I mean, this is like the 50th iteration of the Glamour Girls because uh, they kept switching women out. It was like a broom that you replaced, you know, the the bristles and then you replaced the the stick and then, you know, and so forth. So they, they kept reusing the name because different women kept leaving the organization. So uh, th- this was this was yet another form of the Glamour Girls, uh, Judy Martin and Leilani Kai, probably the most recognizable version of them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of decent names here. I don't know who Don Marie and Donna Cristinello are. Never heard of them before. The Fabulous Moolah, I don't know if she'd always been horrible, but I thought she was just an awful wrestler. I'm going to give her some some leeway because she was really old. <laughs> but I don't know. 
Uh, I even put in my notes, I said about half of the women in this match absolutely suck. Robin was horrible. Did you see that too, or is it just me? Oh, yeah. Um, I guess I was maybe uh, watching with rose-colored glasses, only talking about the uh, four women that I was impressed by. It was kind of cool to see Sensational Sherry, especially with the title. But, uh, you know, after the entrances here, it was kind of a zone out, stare at my phone, and maybe I only kind of kept my attention when I saw the two uh, tag teams go at it. Yeah, uh, the Jumping Bomb Angels were just, like, light years ahead of everybody else in this match. The Glamour Girls were really good. Sherry was pretty good. Uh, Fabulous Mula sucked. Velvet McIntyre was actually pretty good. The funny thing was, this was during the era where, like, the women basically, like, went to Walmart and bought a swimsuit, and that was their wrestling attire. Just the one-piece bait suit. Sherry was the only one. Sherry and the Glamour Girls were, I I should say, were the only ones in this match that looked like they were wearing real wrestling attire. Uh, Now, Sherry had an impeccable tan. Like, she was, like, Hulk Hogan dark. But uh, Velvet McIntyre, uh, she got the first elimination on Donna Cristinello with a victory roll pin. Apparently, that's her finisher. Rockin' Ramen gets dominated and then scores a lucky pinfall elimination on Don Marie with a running cross body. Sherry hits a vertical suplex on Rockin' Robin for the pin. Yes, that was a pin. The Glamour Girls hit a double clothesline on Mula, and Judy Martin pins her for the elimination. One of the jumping bomb angels, I apologize, I didn't know which one was which. They didn't. You know, spend a lot of time distinguishing. And, and it's not because they're Japanese. I don't know which Glamour Girl was which either. And they were very white and blonde. So, <laughs> Yeah, there was uh, 10 uh, ladies in the ring uh, for this matchup here. Yeah, so excuse me that I don't know which bomb angel is which, unless they actively say, oh, that's so-and-so. One of the bomb angels almost gets pinned, but bridges out of it. They ring the bell, but the referee waves it off. The crowd was pretty pissed off that, you know, they ring the bell. Uh, but either way, both of them are still in. Velvet McIntyre pins the ladies wrestling champion sensational Sherry with a victory roll. Velvet goes for a victory roll on Leilani Kai, but Kai slingshots her off the ropes and hits an electric chair drop for the pinfall elimination. Best move of the match so far. Norio Tateno, uh, I'm sorry for the butcher of the name, pins Leilani Kai with a top rope crossbody for the pin, uh, leaving Junie uh, Martin alone against the Jumping Bomb Angels. Jimmy Hart gets drop-kicked off the apron for a huge ovation before Itsuki uh, Yamazaki hits a top-rope clothesline on Martin for the pin. Uncle Dave and I both gave it two stars. What say you? Well, I got I guess maybe I'm just, uh, you know, easy here. I'm going to go two, two and a half stars here. The end made it. Uh, I really like the spot where one of the Jumping Bomb Angels catapults a Glamour Girl onto a Glamour Girl, and then the... The big uh, Jimmy Hart dr- bump, putting uh, the jumping bomb uh, angels over. Um, I just really like. I, I wish it was just a tag team match. Honestly, um, looking back on it, I'm uh, going to dive in more to these uh, jumping bomb angels here. I'm pretty uh, pretty impressed by them. Yeah, if you look them up on on uh, YouTube, you will find a lot of their stuff from over in Japan. They they were very good, and it kind of showed. I uh, I you know hate agreeing with anything Uncle Dave says here, but seriously, Japan was like. As far as in-ring match quality, which was all Japan and cared about back in the day, uh, that was, you know, they were years ahead of the WWF or even the NWA, which was known for in-ring, in-ring quality. So, and, oh, and that for lasted sure. for like, years. With the, you know, all Japan women's, and I feel like it even bled into like a lot of indie promotions in Japan. If you go back and watch any of that stuff, it really took till I would say maybe like uh, TNA, like mid-2000s for 
American audiences to see how good it was from Japan, from I guess going all the way back to the 80s, mid 80s for Japanese women wrestling. It's pretty cool. And I mean, it's still there today with, you know, Riho, uh, Io Shirai, Asuka. It's still like, I feel like we're just now seeing how good uh, that America. Yeah. And, and not everybody likes her, but I think Hikaru Shida is really good. And I've been enjoying some of what she's been doing as the AWA, or sorry, AEW Women's Champion. So, so um, yeah. But moving on here with this show, uh, Sean Mooney's backstage yet again with another heel team, Survivor, heel Survivor Series team. Uh, it's led again by Bobby Heenan, as you do. The team is the Hart Foundation, the Islanders, Demolition, and the Bolsheviks. Greg Valentine and Dino Bravo, who were apparently the new dream team. I didn't even know that was a thing, but there yeah. you have it. Jimmy Hart runs into the frame halfway through the interview trying to put on his classic jacket, the one that uh, I have a Jack's figure of that Jimmy Hart, actually. It's the, the white jacket with the pink hearts all over it. And Jimmy is just fit to be tied here. He he says someone is going to get hurt tonight. He runs, I'm tired of this crap, Daddy. Somebody's going to get hurt tonight. I'm sorry, this is more of a Mickey Mouse than Jimmy Hart, but, you know, it is what it is. I would have just, like, lost it if Jimmy Hart, like, just one time did the Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pamichi Nokerlin is backstage with the babyface team of Strike Force, the Young Stallions, British Bulldogs, the Rougeau, bro- or Rougeau Brothers, and the Killer Bees. I would have said the Fabulous Rougeaus, but they only announced them as the Rougeau Brothers at this time. So, I guess they weren't yet Fabulous I don't know. Oh, they definitely but, weren't fabulous in uh, in this contest. Yeah, yeah. Well, all of them are buzzing and vibrating very awkwardly. Like I don't know if you noticed, they were just like making noise and shaking. <laughs> yeah, like, I was looking at this and I was no. thinking like this was the same time as the Rock and Roll Express, as the Midnight Express, and here like pretty much the young the young stallions, the fabulous Rougeos, the Killer Bees, and even Strike Force. Like the only thing really different was their tights. It was just a bunch of guys with mullets with different colored tights. I feel like uh, this tag division left a lot to be desired, especially looking into like what some of these guys would do later on in wrestling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, team was led by Demolition, but the Bolsheviks were out first because they had to do the Russian national anthem. So but this match was the ten on, or excuse me, yeah, ten on ten uh, Survivor Series tag team match. It went for thirty-seven minutes, but it was. Just shy for a match that was just shy of forty minutes. I really liked it in a weird way. But the first team was Team Demolition. It was Demolition, Axe, and Smash. The Bolsheviks, which were Nikolai Volkov and Borzukov. The New Dream Team, which was Greg Valentine and Dino Bravo. The Islanders, which was Tama and Haku. Tama, for those that don't know, was the uh, Tonga Kid. And the Hart Foundation, which was British, or excuse me, uh, which was uh, Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart. And listen to this list of managers. Not only did we have, you know, all the tag teams, but in their corner they had Bobby the Brain Heenan, Jimmy Hart, Slick, Johnny V, who is Johnny Valentine, and Mr. Fuji. My God. The other team was Strike Force, Tito Santana and Rick Martel, the British Bulldogs of Davy Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid, the Young Stallions of Paul Roma and Jim Powers, the Rougeau Brothers of Raymond and Jacques Rougeau, and the Killer Bees of B. Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel. Oh, man, that was a mouthful. But For sure. uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of uh, future champions in this one. A lot of uh, future episodes of Dark Side of the Ring in this one. It was yeah, like you said, thirty-seven minutes, but still pretty entertaining. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'll wait till I get to the ratings at the end here. But uh, yeah, not only is there a 
say there were a million men on either side of the ring, but the heels have a thousand managers on their side as well. All the babyface team uh, tag teams get massive ovations coming out. And also, you gotta love girls in cars blaring over the PA system for Strike Force. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would, uh, I would be really upset if I, you know, got the whole family big front row seats to uh, the big WWF show, and then all of a sudden there's just ten men on either side taking up all of the ring. You had a hard time doing Irish whips in this match. This was uh, a little ridiculous. Yeah, I know, and. Uh... They did this for a few years. Bruce Pritchard said they, they eventually cut it off and quit quit making this a thing because from a filming standpoint, it was just so hard to film it because how the hell do you get the camera around anyone when the camera is or when the ring is literally surrounded by people? And then from a fan standpoint, like you were talking about, how the hell do you see anything? But, yeah. you know, with with all of that mixed in, I thought they did a great job with putting the match together. So I don't know if that was Pat Patterson just yet or, you know, who the hell do we give the nod to, but they did a damn good job with it, I thought. Getting into the match at hand, though, Tito Santana eliminates the Bolsheviks first. But the rule, by the way, is if one person gets pinned, they're, you know, both members of the team are gone. So that made it go a little smoother, I thought. Tito Santana eliminates the Bolsheviks first by pinning Boris Zukov with a flying forearm because, of course, I... Look, again, not to speak ill of the dead, but nobody has any fond memories of Borzukov. He was just kind of there. Uh, after Jacques Rougeau misses with a spinning crossbody out of the corner, Axe pins him to eliminate the Rougeau brothers. Tito Santana nails a flying forearm on Jim Neidhart. But during the pin, Brett does his flying elbow drop to the back of the head of Santana, and Neidhart lays on him to pin the uh, to pin Strike Force, so they're gone. I was a fan of Strike Force, by the way. That was one of my low-key favorites of the 80s. After the Bulldogs completely destroy Haku, he no-sells everything. I mean, they power-slammed him, flying head-butted him. Just, they destroyed Haku. He gets up, no-sells the hell out of it, sidekicks Dynamite Kid, and pins him to eliminate the Bulldogs. Uh. I mean, this match was, yeah, a little clunky at best, but that was that was pretty funny. Yeah, I was just like, dude, I, I get that the whole thing was supposed to be, yeah, the, the thing is always, oh, well, you know, the Samoans are tough, and they've got hard heads and whatever, but this was just stupid. Like, <laughs> like you, you made the Bulldogs look like crap by doing that, but either way. Greg Valentine attempts the figure four on Jim Powers, but Paul Roma dives off the top rope over Valentine's back for the sunset flip to eliminate the Dream Team, former, well, I don't know if he's former or soon to be. I think he was soon to be four horsemen, Paul Roma. So we'll keep that in mind. I think, uh, Jim that, Renzel, I think he's a future future four horsemen member in '87. Yeah, yeah. I think it was not until like the early '90s he uh, had that stint as a as a horseman. Yeah, yeah. It was '93 uh, and '92. Whenever, whenever Flair went back to the to the end of leeway, because he, he they signed him, but he couldn't wrestle, and he was doing the Flair for the gold. Uh, interview segments. So I, I I remember that now. So in a keep in mind this this uh, this guy in about five years is going to be a very short lived four horseman. <laughs> Yuck. Anyway, uh, Jim Brunzel picks up Bret Hart. Tama drop kicks Bret's back so that he falls on top of Brunzel, but Brunzel rolls through with a pin to eliminate Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation as a whole. In the end, Jim Brunzel tries to sunset flip Tama behind the referee's back, but Tama grabs the ropes. Uh, he slides out Brian Blair 
then puts on his bees mask. Remember that gimmick? He puts on the killer bees mask, and he sunset flips over Tama with the ref's back turn. He's the fresh man. He makes the pinfall for the final elimination. I, I said this was a goofy ending, but predictable for the bees. They did this all the time. It was a very, it was a very heelish move by a very babyface team. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I mean, especially in hindsight with like twin magic and things like this, this is just goofy as hell to see. That was a thing. Like WWF, their their baby faces were kind of heelish at times. And we'll get into that with Hulk Hogan as well. It's just like Greg was saying, because uh, Greg grew up a Hulkamaniac watching him since the 80s. And he, and he was like, yeah, I never realized it until later on, you know, watching these events back. But Hogan was a heel. Like, yeah, he yeah. Back- like, uh, if you can be a jerk to a jerk and no one thinks you're a jerk kind of a way to think about it. Yeah, because he didn't switch up his style much as uh, as a heel, because he was he was back raking, eye raking, uh, you know, just doing underhanded stuff, using weapons, and just like nobody cared. But yeah, it, it's it's weird, and and he does something very very heelish on this show that, that we'll get to uh, in the main event coming up. But but either way, uh, Uncle Dave gave this four stars. Uh, Whoa, I gave it three and a half. Yeah, I gave it three and a half because I honestly thought it was the best match of the night. And I gave extra points because, like we talked about, it was just a mass of humanity and they made it work. What say you? Uh, that's true. I definitely say it was, you know, it's pretty up there. So, uh, quarter. So I'm going to give the highest rating out of any match, but uh, a little lower than you guys. I felt like with the women's match, it peaked. The, the, the finish was the best part. And then with this one, it was really the middle that was good. I mean, we got to see Dynamite Kid versus Bret Hart, like I mentioned before, and then Haku versus Davy Boy. And I got to thinking, who has the better son wrestler, Tama Tonga or Davy Boy Smith Jr.? And that kind of uh, kind of kind of interests me a little bit. Just seeing these matchups in the middle here. Right. Yeah. A lot of lot of history in this match, man. And the Killer Bees, I thought, had a really stupid gimmick, but I thought they were good. Very underrated. I just, I hated the whole switching out with the masks thing. Like I said, it was very heelish. Here is the part of the show that was clearly like the intermission before the main event. So uh, before we get into all of this, I guess, to uh, to just make up for it, we'll take our, our uh, second to final break of the podcast because we always take one before we get into the main event. We'll just take it before we get into intermission here just to uh, make up for it. And uh, when we come back, we're going to get into... Things done during intermission and the main event at hand. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at main event underscore marks and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash main event marks pod. No one really tries to be unsafe online. Enter a dress for free tater tots. But every time you give up info and privacy. So I gave your birth date for free parking. That's how I got this robe. You may give up some safety, too. Norton 360 with LifeLock has device security, a VPN for online privacy, and identity theft protection, all in one. No one can prevent all cybercrime or identity theft, but you can save 25% or more off your first year. Opt into cyber safety at norton.com slash news. The been thinking about McDonald's all day can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. 
There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Now, back to our program. All right, intermission time, I guess. That's what I'm assuming because people were up getting popcorn and whatever else, using the bathroom. Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon are wondering out loud how the Million Dollar Man is spending his Thanksgiving. And then we go to footage of Teddy Biasi in the back of a limousine counting his money, you know, like you do. Uh, he was working hard, at, or he says working hard and being thankful are overrated and life is just all about the money. He says he's only thankful for his money this year and he it cuts to footage of DiBiase telling kids he'll pay them for various challenges, which the kids never complete. So he doesn't ever pay anybody. We now go to DiBiase lounging in his study at home while Virgil stands next to him with his arms folded like he always does. Uh, we get more footage of Ted humiliating people for money. Now we switch to DiBiase being served at his table before he shows us footage of uh, someone kissing his sweaty feet in the ring. Did you know that's Rob Van Dam? I uh, did not. I did not. That's uh, I, I didn't even catch it when I watched it. That's that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's a very young, mulleted Rob Van Dam wearing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt. So, there you go. Teen, teenage RVD kissing DiBiase's sweaty feet for money in the middle of the ring. So, uh, we then get more footage of DiBiase buying people out before we... Basically, we see the footage of him, like, basically buying out an entire public pool for an afternoon. Yeah, and kicking everybody hilarious. out. Yeah, it was ridic- <laughs> ridiculous stuff. But then, I mean, we see footage of him... Seven. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. It, it said a lot about uh, like Undertaker's the best character of all time, but I gotta say, not solid number two, and definitely in the Mount Rushmore is Million Dollar Man with this gimmick right here, especially in the '80s, uh, and then even in hindsight, it just clicked so much. Uh, so many people try to do it since, and it really, uh, it really hasn't worked out as well as this Million Dollar Man right here. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, Ted DiBiase was the best. I have a a Jax figure of him that I'm very proud of. I. I I've grown to appreciate Teddy Biasi in uh, in the later years. I mean, I even kind of liked him as a kid. I, I like the theme. I like the look. He was cool. But, um, yeah, it, the final shot of this whole thing is he's driving, uh, like, a really old, like, two-seater, like, hot rod kind of car. You know, people that have to see it. It's like, uh, looks like something straight out of The Great Gatsby. But he's driving oh, yeah. that, and he's, he's wearing a big fur coat. That was Vince McMahon's car, I believe, one of them. And Vince McMahon's fur coat that he was wearing. So I don't know if you if you knew that. Bruce Pritchard actually talked about that on his podcast. He said, "Yeah, that was all like that was Vince's stuff. Vince McMahon was like the the Million Dollar Man was basically based on Vince McMahon." No wonder he uh, got pushed as much as he did. I always uh, remember watching uh, Drew McIntyre versus Robert Roode in NXT and thinking, like, "Yep, this is uh, Triple H's booking. He's got his like you know Motorhead persona." And his uh, evolution persona going up against each other. So it's kind of funny that they've been doing that since the 80s with the uh, Million Dollar Man and Vince. you got to play into the boss's ego a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, that, and, and Bruce said he didn't even realize it until, like, later on when Vince was, like, Vince literally was, like, because uh, he hated smoking. And, and some guy was, was back when you could. He was smoking on an airplane in first class right next to Vince. And Vince offered to buy the guy's seat, and he paid him to quit smoking. So, because because Vince hated smoking so bad, and he didn't want to smell it, so he and uh, he said at that point he looked at uh, Bruce was sitting next to Vince, and he looked at him. He was like, 
you're the million dollar man. <laughs> like it's literally you. And that's awesome. As a fellow yeah. uh, cigarette hater myself, uh, I think that's like the, I think Vince just went face. Right. Yeah. yeah. And well, and he said uh, like it had been said multiple times that like if Vince became a professional wrestler, like his original dream back when he was watching, uh, uh, I can't remember which one of the Jerry Graham, Doctor Jerry Graham, uh, and, and idolizing him, he would have been the million dollar man. That was his dream. Getting into furthering on here, uh, Grill Monsoon and Jesse Ventura drag out the next segment for about. 10 talking to each other, talking about the event that we just watched. So it was clearly intermission time, and they were buying time here. Sean Mooney calls out the Honky Talk Man and Jimmy Hart for an interview on a platform in the center of the crowd. I never understood these, but I guess it's just to showcase the crowd and get some background noise. Uh, Honky puts over that he was the last man standing for his team and that he's taken on all comers, except for the Macho Man. He says that Hulk Hogan was always jealous of him because he's a better wrestler and a better champion, and the Macho Man has had too many chances at the Intercontinental title, so he doesn't get any more. After the heel team enters for the main event, we go backstage with a babyface team being interviewed by Mean Gene Okerlund. The team consists of Hulk Hogan, Don Morocco, Paul Orndorff, Ken Patera, and Bam Bam Bigelow with Sir Oliver Humperdinck. I said, what the hell is on Hulk Hogan's head? I, what the hell was that? I think when you do a lot of uh, cocaine, your hands get real fidgety and you got to look for something to do. So I think that started out as a T-shirt and it just kept cutting and cutting <laughs> until we got what we saw here on his head. My God, it was basically a I mean, you could tell it was a T-shirt that he turned into a headband. But it was like it was a headband with a really long tie in the back. And then he had tassels hanging from it. I was like, what the uh, but anyway, I, I I did say I love the look of this WWF title that Hogan is wearing. This was oh, yeah. literally right before they switched to the uh, what they called the Eagle title. I have a uh, a Mattel version of this belt, and I, I absolutely love it. And um, yeah, but the Big Eagle was the one, and I remember they switched right after this because they uh, that was the one DiBiase paid uh, Andre to win at the Saturday night's main event. So it was not this title. So something had to change fairly quickly. I'm not sure the exact time that it switched. It might have been that event, but I could be wrong. Either way, uh, Hogan compares his team to hungry animals that are going to burn the other team alive. And it's kind of weird. But H I don't know if you noticed this. Everybody got some mic time, but Hogan literally stood in front of every one of them while they were talking, <laughs> so you couldn't even see them. Uh, I didn't. That's a that's hilarious uh, observation there. I mean, no one was more over than Hogan in the 80s, and Hogan oh, made sure. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, even Jesse Ventura, who was no fan of Hogan's, you know, when Hogan came out, he was like, I'm not even going to talk right now because he can't even hear me. So, Oh, yeah, yeah that was, that was a moment of the show right there. When Hogan came out with that ridiculous headband, with the American flag, that was why everyone bought a ticket, was to see Hulk Hogan not even wrestle, just come out. You could definitely tell at that moment they were losing their fucking mind. Yeah, they fight for this, man. I mean, they were hot for the other stuff in the night, but this was it. But the heel team that came out first was Team Andre the Giant. They were led by Andre. Uh, they also consisted of Ravishing Rick Rude, King Kong Bundy, The Natural Butch Reed, and One Man Gang. In their corner, they had Body the Brain Heenan and Slick. The babyface team was Hulk Hogan, Ken Patera, The Rock Don Morocco, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, and Bam Bam Bigelow with Sir Oliver Humperdinck. This went for 22 minutes. 
Hogan had to ham it up by carrying a gigantic American flag to the ring. I love that. The, it was just, it was huge. It looked like he pulled it straight out of the ground, like uh, King Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone or something. Rick Rude's tights are just traffic signs all over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ridiculous tights as always. Yeah, he just, like, this was a weird pair of tights of his. I was like, okay. Anyway, uh, getting into the match itself, Hogan eliminates Reed first with a big leg drop. Next, Patera and One Man Gang go to clothesline each other, but Gang gets the better of the exchange and he lands on top of Patera for the pinfall elimination. King Kong Bundy in the back, allowing Rick Rude to roll up Orndorff for, uh, with a schoolboy pin. Hogan actually nails a running, jumping knee on Rick Rude, which I assume was a shout-out to Brutus Beefcake, because <laughs> Beefcake was doing the high knee during this era. Morocco hits a big power slam on Rude for the pinfall elimination next. Andre headbutts Morocco, and then one-man gang hits the 747 splash to eliminate The Rock. Hogan ends up brawling with one-man gang and King Kong Bundy outside of the ring, body slamming both of them outside, and then he gets counted out. This is Bam Bam Bigelow all alone against the one-man gang, King Kong Bundy, and Andre the Giant. Bam Bam eliminates Bundy with a slingshot body splash. One-man Bam Gang goes for the 747 splash off the top, but Bam Bam moves. Gang crashes to the mat, and Bam Bam pins him for the elimination. It's now one-on-one. Finally, Andre the Giant pinned Bam Bam Bigelow with a single underhook suplex for the win. Uncle Dave actually rated this higher than me. He gave it three and three-fourth stars. I don't know what shaved off a quarter of a star, but whatever. I gave it three stars. What say you? I'm going three as well. Um... It's a little bit above the uh, women's match for me with the star power and a little bit above the tag match just because of the star power alone kind of gets at that rating. I thought I thought it was a like a really well put together match. I thought in terms of in-ring stuff, I thought the tag match was well and above this. However, this was pretty good for the people that were in it. I didn't care about everybody that was in it. Like I mean Don Morocco's fine. I really couldn't care less about Ken Patera. Uh, you know, there was just, I don't know, Butch Reed, I didn't really care about. Uh, you know, it, it it is what it is. This was One Man Gang right before he became Akeem the African Dream, which would never fly in 2020. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Uh, I also enjoyed about this match, there was some good matchups here, just like the tag match. I mean, Orndorff versus Rude. I mean, I'm, I need to look in to see if they, they wrestled a one-on-one ever. And then it was cool to see Bam Bam versus Bundy uh, kind of go at it a little bit here. Like, big mans of different oh, generations yeah. kind of right there in that gap period. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed those matchups. I enjoyed, um, I, I really liked the end of the match where it was Bam Bam against three the other team. And he overcame two of them. He was doing good against Andre. And then Andre caught him with that suplex and he just, he beats him. It's pretty interesting here because it was like the whole show kind of seemed like it set up a intercontinental program with Honky Tonk Man and uh, Bam Bam, but we never really saw it. Like I don't ever remember seeing that view because it was like, how do both men handle three on one? You know, uh, but it kind of never came to fun. fruition. I would have loved to have seen Bam Bam Bigelow as a top guy in the WWF, like getting title shots. I think him and Hogan could have drawn, could have drew money together, uh, but I, yeah, it just never happened. And it, it was weird because Hogan liked taking on the monsters. So, I mean, the dude literally had tattoos on his head, and he was a great worker. So I, I just I don't get it. Bam Bam did headline a WrestleMania, WrestleMania 11, which we don't talk about, but either way. Bundy made a vented with Hogan one time, right? 
Yeah, two uh, two years before or two WrestleManias before this, he yeah he took on two of his former WrestleMania opponents. Because at WrestleMania two, Bundy headlined with Hogan in the cage, and then at WrestleMania three, the most recent one here, he main evented with Andre the Giant in the uh, Pontiac Silverdome. That's right. That's right. Uh, after the match, the crowd blows because Hulk Hogan is running to the ring with his world title. Hogan slides in and blasts Andre in the head repeatedly with the WWF title like a true babyface. Andre didn't do jack squat to him, but Hogan has to run in and be a sore loser. I'm with Jesse Ventura on this one. He said, just like a sore loser, he's going after Andre for no reason, and I agree. But Andre takes off out of the ring. Bobby Heenan holds him back from going back in, shouting down Hogan. And it was Hogan must pose time as Andre and Heenan leave and Hogan celebrates his, or well, they celebrate their win and Hogan celebrates being, uh, being a little turd. <laughs> but we go right to the back during this. Mean Gene Okerlund is waiting backstage to talk with Andre the Giant and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Andre is just pouring sweat like he just ran a marathon. Uh, mean Gene says that Hogan wants another match with Andre and... Hogan says, or excuse me, Heenan says that Hogan can have that match if he signs his name on the dotted line. Andre says that he was the sole survivor tonight because he's smarter than everybody else. So he's the intelligent giant. Yeah, so that about does it for that. Um, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the show on the other end of this break, and we'll talk about what's coming up on the podcast right after this. on Twitter and Instagram at main event underscore marks and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash main event marks pod. Hey guys, this is Gabby Douglas. If you have an active lifestyle like me, hydration is key. That's why I love the hydration watermelon smoothie from Smoothie King. Blended with whole fruits, coconut water, and more electrolytes than some of the leading sports drinks. Hydration watermelon is the cleaner way to hydrate with no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. So you can recover and perform at your peak ability during the summer heat. Order online or through the app for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Now, back to our program. All right. We are back and wrap things up here. The final ratings of the show. IMDB gave this a 7.3 out of 10. Cagematch.net gave it a 7.39 out of 10. I gave it a, a uh, an even 7 out of 10. What say you? Um, I'm going to go 6.5 out of 10. Um, it, yeah, just four matches. Uh, it was, you know, just a lot of entrances. Some good wrestling, but uh, I guess uh, I think uh, I'm just a Mid-Atlantic fan through and through. I definitely enjoy watching those kind of uh, more bell-to-bell uh, based uh, big shows. Yeah, I understand that. I was, during this time period in NWA, either it was really good or really boring, I felt. And WWF had a little bit of that as well. This, I don't know, Greg was telling me before we recorded this, he was like, that show absolutely sucked. And then when I got to the end of it, I said, ah, I actually kind of liked it. I was entertained by the by most of it. And he was like, well, uh, I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to hearing this then. So, yeah, I 
I enjoyed it. Like I said, seven out of ten, uh, which he always grades with like actual like grades. So I'd say C, C minus, somewhere in there. But yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, don't go into it thinking, man, this is going to be an awesome show with a lot of great wrestling. It, it's not that, but I definitely think it was worth everybody's time. You should definitely go and watch it. Definitely, if you were uh, if you were uh, you know a fan of nostalgic wrestling, I mean, it definitely hits all those buttons. I mean, you see the Hogan pop, you see the Million Dollar Man vignette, you get to see uh, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat team up with Jake the Snake Roberts and Macho Man. So right out of that, you get what you expect out of it, but um, you you only get what you expect out of it, I would say. Right, yeah. It, it didn't overachieve, but yeah, I thought it was good. For what it needed to be, I thought it was good. Uh, uh, real quick, just to uh, kind of plug what's coming up here, and then uh, we'll kind of uh, I, I definitely want to hear from from you to wrap it up. Uh, if if you guys go back this this week on Wednesday, we dropped our regular show. We covered TNA Victory Road 2004. It was their very first like monthly pay per view, not weekly pay per view. They were on FS1 with Impact at this time, so. Victory Road 04 was their very first. It was headlined by Jeff Jarrett and Jeff Hardy in a ladder match for the NWA title. Definitely good memories, if anybody remembers the heyday of TNA, I'll say. Uh, some, definite, some definite good memories and some stuff to laugh at as well. So, uh, you know, good variety there. Coming up, we're wrapping up the month of November with Survivor Series 2006. Anybody remembers that? It was... Uh, yeah, it was a pretty decent event, so uh, we're going to be covering that this next week to uh, to wrap up the, the turkey month before we dive into December, which uh, is going to be very Starcade-heavy, I'll just say that. But real quick, uh, for you, Jacob, I forgot to ask you at the top of the show, uh, I know you host Curtain Jerkin? That is right, that is right. Uh, Curtain Jerkin, uh, once or twice a week, it's on WrestlingWithWrestling.com on YouTube, and it's on the Dragon Suplex Podcasting Network on Spotify or anywhere else, definitely check that out. Um, and if you like the show a lot, definitely DM me on at JG Pro Wrestling on Twitter or, or at JG Picture Taken on Instagram, and you can get yourself a Curtain Jerkin baseball tee for you and yours this holiday season. Awesome. And I will put the links to his show in the description down below. So go ch- check that out give him some love and uh we hope to have you back i know january is the next big one so here in two months you and i were talking about reviewing the very first ever royal rumble from 1988 that should be interesting yeah i would like nothing more than to review that show with you man yeah it's uh some good old classic wrestling but thank you for uh for sticking around with me here today and uh and talking some old wrestling oh anytime man it was a lot of fun i have a question though uh Victory Road 04, yeah. was that when um, Hall and Nash were doing the Kings of Wrestling uh, gimmick, dressing up like Elvis? Um, sort of, sort of not. I mean, it was, the whole theme of the show was Scott Hall was going to be in Jeff Jarrett's corner, and supposedly Kevin Nash was going to be in Jeff Hardy's corner, and that comes into play big time at the end of the show. So, you know, they did their typical overbooking the hell out of the main event that, you know, TNA loved to do, so... There was also, if anybody remembers, in November of 2004, it was when George Bush was up for re-election against uh, John Kerry. So they had to get an election thing in there with, uh, who's going to be the director of authority? Who are you going to vote for, Vince Russo or Dusty Rhodes? So that, that was a, a, a thing throughout the whole show. And they, they threw in a bunch of jabs at the WWE, at the state of Florida, for the 2000 election debacle. 
it was it was nuts just ridiculousness but yeah lots of fun stuff man but yeah thanks for joining me today and and uh we will i'm definitely looking forward to seeing you again or talking to you again in january oh yeah hell yeah i appreciate you having me on man and i'm definitely gonna check out that uh tna04 review sounds awesome I'll thank you very much. And to all of our new listeners, thank you. We'll see you next week on Wednesday. And don't forget on Mondays, it's the main event, Figure Federation. This isn't just basketball. This is the NBA playoffs. And with William Hill Sportsbook, you can dial up the playoff intensity from the palm of your hand. Just download the William Hill mobile app and your first bet of up to $500 is risk-free using promo code RADIORF. New users only. Must be 21 years or older and present in Virginia to bet. Paid and free bets. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call, text, or chat our confidential and toll-free helpline at 1-888-532-3500. William Hill Sportsbook. Proud partner of the NBA. Let's make it interesting. Enjoy. Thanks. The order breakfast at the McDonald's drive-thru. Tell yourself you'll wait to eat it at work. But it smells way too good. So you eat it right there in the McDonald's parking lot meal. There's a meal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, get any size iced coffee for 99 cents until 11 a.m. And pair it with your favorite breakfast sandwich or one of our tasty bakery treats. Price and participation may vary. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.